0: So you're telling me, I don't need to go pay a lot of money to see a psychiatrist, I don't need a prescription for clonopin. I don't need to pop a pill. I can do something in my lifestyle that's going to prevent panic attacks. Good. Hi, I'm Zoe. Hi, I'm
1: Erica. Hey, Erica. This is our podcast. Well, what do we do on the podcast? Uh, we talk to wellness experts. Well, what do we talk about? wellness stuff. And why are we doing this?
2: Because we want to have an inclusive conversation about things that you can
1: actually use and apply to your life. Right. We don't think that wellness should feel preachy. We think
2: it should feel like everybody can participate. That's right. So if you like what you hear,
1: tell a friend. Give us five stars. They're all free. All of the above. All of the above. And think of us as your navigators on the bumpy highway to well. So speaking of panic attacks, were we... Were we? Aren't we always? Aren't we always? It sounds like your morning was not as panic-free as you would like.
2: It was filled with much urine
1: and vomit. It was filled with human fluids. It was not filled
2: with uh, smoothies and supplements.
1: It was filled with
2: pee and vomit. Um, Pee and puke. Well, if that's not an introduction, I don't know what it is.
1: That's not an appetizing way to dive into a a listen. Um, But we had our... Dear friend, Ellen Vora, Dr. Ellen Vora, come back for one big one.
2: She's such a, she's such a, well, she's writing, she's finished her book, which we will learn about quite soon, which I'm so excited about because it's all about stress and anxiety, which is no stranger to us and pretty
1: much anyone on the planet at the moment. So it feels like a pretty, <laughs> it's, uh, it's worth listening. listen. Like, are we still writing and talking about stress and anxiety? Why, yes, we are because it never fucking goes away, but... No. Um, no, we wanted to get like real real granular and specific on this because I think the whole concept of panic attacks is very broad. It kind of feels like a catch all for a lot of people and if you 're feeling you know upset and panicky about stuff that 's fair, but that 's not necessarily the same thing as actually having these like acute moments um, and she She did a really good job, I think, of kind of defining the difference between um you know yeah. sort of like there's yeah. like a medical sense of it and then there's kind of the situational sense of it and Oh, I don't know
2: it's I all- mean at the end of the day basically Ellen I can listen
1: to you read the phone book
2: I mean it's, it's just she's, she's another one of these just like again I just feel held also I like, know
1: we've got some good nurturing ladies in our in our circle too, and
2: they're so damn smart too which is just it's such a great combination
1: but um, yeah, so, anyway. you know uh, spoiler alert but um, grab your favorite nut butter and have a listen on this episode oh,
2: <laughs> it's only gonna help I promise
1: so what if i told you your morning coffee could make you smarter or that your afternoon dark chocolate habit could also provide the most powerful immune support available in nature you'd probably say i was full of shiitake that's a mushroom joke because we're a mushroom company earth and star bringing you the amazing benefits of functional mushrooms in your favorite everyday products we make coffee tea snacks and more all with a whopping 2000 milligrams of adaptogen extracts like lion's mane for brain power, chaga for immune support, and cordyceps for physical stamina. Crack open a can of our certified organic plant-based lattes and cold brew, or choose our ground coffee to brew at home just the way you like it. Sweet tooth? Try our four flavors of delicious dark chocolate bars or our cute little drops to put in your favorite beverage. Every Earth and Star product is 100% organic, gluten and dairy free with zero refined sugars, fillers or gums. Cuz gross. But do they taste like mushrooms? No, they taste like coffee, matcha, chocolate bars and everything else you already consume. They just come with extra superpowers. Visit earthandstar.com and use the code podcast to get 15% off your first order. Earth and Star, your daily routine elevated. It's no secret that uh, we asked to talk about panic attacks today. Um, It's not a coincidence. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I I mean, I think, well, like you just said, there's collective grief and trauma everywhere and everybody's having trouble Mm -hmm. with processing how far we've come and how far it feels like we still need to go and... Right now, like as we speak, they're in that stage of like, oh, we might have to go back into something that's like a version of everything that made you miserable for the last year and a half. And But I did, I mean, I I genuinely wanted to talk about panic attacks because it's uh, unfortunately something that I personally have been afflicted with in like a very significant way in the last couple of years, pre-COVID, but it's definitely gotten worse. And I feel like it's one of those things that, you know... It kind of gets dismissed because it's very easy for people in the same way, even that like anxiety gets dismissed. Like people can say, Oh yeah, I, you know, oh, I'm so anxious. I'm so anxious. And there's a difference between clinical anxiety and feeling anxious about something. And I feel like when people it's very easy to throw around, like, oh, I just feel like I'm having a panic attack. And and I certainly was one to to do that for however long, because it felt like, oh, I'm feeling really worked up about something, but Having gone through like the really terrifying ones where I've actually thought I was dying more than once, um there's a huge difference. And I was hoping that you could help us unpack it a little bit so that you know we can kind of normalize it and help people understand that it's not like your friend being dramatic when they say that this is happening,
0: yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm so glad we're talking about this topic. It is so important. It's so central. It's frequently misunderstood. So um, the best description I heard of a panic attack, I'm going to paraphrase it and botch it a bit, but someone described it as, I think it was a Columbia psychiatrist. You are sitting alone in a room in the dark, and then suddenly just a hand comes out from behind you and starts choking you. It's like this feeling of terror and suffocation and I'm dying and doom. Um, And so when people are like, oh, you're just anxious like the rest of us. No, it's definitely an order of magnitude greater. And it's exquisitely uncomfortable by definition, by design. And I think it is the kind of thing that um, I break down into how I approach panic attacks. If I have a patient who's experiencing panic attacks and we want to have them suffering less in their life, here's how I structure my thinking about it. I do think anxiety of all types, panic, generalized anxiety, a kind of milder subclinical anxiety. I still think it all falls into two categories, what I call false anxiety and true anxiety. And to caveat, false anxiety is not to invalidate the experience of the anxiety at all. It's not this is no less suffering. um, the feeling is very real. But it speaks to the fact that this is the preventable or avoidable anxiety that doesn't need to be happening, and there's a pathway out of it. It usually has a physiologic basis, and so that's where we start to look at things like, and we'll go into these a bit in depth. But things like blood sugar, things like caffeine sensitivity, relationship to alcohol, sleep quality, breathing quality—like, are you breathing through your nose or through your mouth? How's your diaphragm? And You know, all the fascial holding patterns, like we've talked about before together, um, how that can get stuck in a holding pattern that's not helping us breathe fully. And, you know, gut dysfunction, inflammation, all of these things that can communicate to the threat detection centers in the brain there is a threat detected, freak out. And so that's one approach and I'll start there. That's the low hanging fruit. That's to me, the without which not like there's no amount of psycho-spiritual healing we can do that if somebody is just in a dynamic with their blood sugar, that's going to create panic, even if everything else in their life gets into alignment. And so we work on that first and get that tucked. And then beyond the false or avoidable or preventable anxiety is what I call true anxiety, or you can think of it as purposeful anxiety. And that's where it is some inner truth, basically tapping us on our shoulder and saying, hey, something's not right here. Please pay attention to this. And we happen to live in times where there are a lot of calls to action available to us. Somewhere on the interface between false anxiety and true anxiety exists one thing, trauma, which we can talk about. And another thing is our relationship to what's wrong in the world at large. And I think we as humans are designed to be aware of a certain amount of what's going okay or not so okay in our community around us. But we evolved in the conditions where you could only know, you know, so many people, maybe you knew up to a hundred people, maybe you knew up to a certain radius of geography. And now, you know, for increasingly, We've been aware of more people, more things going on. now we're you know, connected through the internet, through our smartphones, through social media. And I think that broadening of our awareness of what's going wrong in the world has in certain ways been even amplified by the fact that more and more now, companies that are competing in the attention economy that want to own our attention, they realize that if they prey on our fear response, If they instill some amount of fear, uncertainty, or doubt, they own us. We're going to rubberneck. We're going to stay tuned. We're going to click. We're going to keep scrolling. And it really exploits this aspect of us, this true anxiety aspect of us, which is I want to be concerned. Like if someone's hurting, I want to pay attention and see how I can help. And it's a beautiful pro-social quality that humans have. It's being exploited right now for money in certain ways. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean it's not true that there is suffering all around the world but the people that are bringing this into our awareness are not necessarily doing it for the most virtuous reasons they need our attention as the current commodity and so i think all of this comes together to create this moment where there's all these pressures on our physiology on our psyche it's just, it's just too much. It's too many stressors. It's too many threats to our threat detection, detection center in our brain. And we're basically constantly operating from a place of, holy shit, things are bad. And some of it we can chip away at, some of it we can respond to, and it can kind of transmute into a feeling of purpose and duty. And so I think that's what we're working with. That was a long-winded answer. No, it
2: was so thorough. <laughs> as usual. Um, it's so interesting because when you when you talk about the piece specifically having to do with, you know, we're now, you know, like social media, right? We have access. We see everything that's going on globally. You know, when I think about specifically like younger kids, how, how you know, there are all these like higher rates of depression and anxiety and whatnot, and it's tied to social media. I always just think it's because it's sort of like the, the comparison, the sort of like fear of missing out, you know, the sort of like, that aspect of it is what's contributing to this like weighty kind of feeling of like, you know, everyone's life is better than mine and therefore I'm depressed and sad. But I think that that's a whole another point that you bring up that I don't think about often enough, which is like, we're also just looking at like devastation, like around the world, like we're looking at horrible things going wrong everywhere, right? So that we didn't, you know, we, we didn't have access to like even 10 years ago.
0: I think that social media issue, like it's, there's a four prong reason. There's probably many more prongs, but here are the ones that immediately come to my mind. Like why it's so detrimental to our mental health. As you brought up, there's the compare and despair experience of like, it's FOMO in your face, which by the way, impacts females more than males, because we're sort of designed to be like, am I included in the group? It's a little different than am I hunting in parallel with the other males? Like, it's am I included in the circle of women helping each other? And so when we feel left out, it hits us even more on a raw biological level. Um, but then there is also the way that I call it the banality of fear. It's kind of like for this banal reasons of media companies, news networks, just trying to sell more advertising revenue. They need to own more, more of our time, more of our attention, more of our eyeballs and our clicks and fear sells. And um, that's a piece of it. I also think that there is just the sheer impact it has on our circadian rhythm because it's the phone screen emits blue spectrum light. If we're looking at that at 9am, okay, fine. No big deal. But typically we're looking at it after sunset quite a bit. And that's sending a message through our eyes up along the optic nerve to a part of the brain called the suprachiasmatic nuclei. And that's basically always scanning the landscape for light cues to tell our brain what time of day it is. And originally, this design was foolproof because we were on the proverbial savannah of evolution. And if it was light out, it was by definition daytime. And if it was dark out, it was by definition nighttime. And so we were able to get tired at night and sleep deeply. And these days, if we're looking at TikTok at 11 p.m., it's basically telling our brain, good morning, the sun is rising. (laughs) And our brain is thinking, that's weird. I feel pretty exhausted, but okay, if you say so, sun. And then we suppress our melatonin, we secrete cortisol, our stress hormone, and it makes us feel awake and alert. And then we're like, oh shit, I have to fall asleep. I have an important meeting tomorrow. I need good sleep. And then we can't fall asleep. We're tossing and turning. We have that second wind feeling of tired, but wired. And the fourth prong is just the opportunity cost of when we spend time on our phone what we're not doing you know for kids they're not you know obviously this ties into the kind of free range parenting concept and safetyism, but like we're not just out on our bikes exploring the natural world or like finding toads in the grass we're just not out in nature, not outdoors, not being physically active, not connecting with other humans we're just in our little digital silos, connecting, but in a sort of like the way artificial sugar relates to real sugar. It's like, yeah, there's that taste of sweetness, but there's a chemical aftertaste. And I think like, you know, even in adulthood, it's not that we're supposed to be out biking and finding toads, but maybe we're supposed to be connecting with the people in our lives Mm -hmm. in person. And that that would actually help us feel held and safe and supported and witnessed and like just meet all those fundamental human needs in a way that we're not fully getting when we're half in the room, half in the world of our phones.
1: Yeah, that's so, that's really, it's interesting. And especially when you raise the example of, it's less, I mean, it's sometimes about FOMO, like, am I included in the group? But then the flip side of it, to your point, is like the media is also selling us, you know, "These, these children are dying here, these fires are burning here, like, what are you doing about it? And so it's not even like whether or not you're included, it's like, well, you're passive, and you're just looking, and if you're not taking action, then you know you're somehow like there's a, there's a, like a blame and shame there too, um, yeah. which just really points us back to like there's just too much information, and and I mean we can go on and on about how social media yeah. has just done no is con- contributed no good because it still doesn't feel like it is.
0: <laughs> there's feel some like... good maybe that it's contributed, but we <laughs> I don't know if it's. No, if
1: is, if I
2: hate to. I, I feel like I'm so, so aggressively anti, I feel like every single day I'm just like, ah, oh, I'm like two seconds away from just canceling this stupid Instagram account. I've never had a Facebook account. And now I know why. But like, I mean, it's just, it's like, it doesn't bring enough positive, positive no, anything. It's not additive. Um, and yes, I guess the FOMO in me is going to kind of like win. Uh, <laughs> but, but, um, but I, I want to ask, so, you know, there's so much talk about stress and how stress is stressing us out and sort of like down, <laughs> downward spiral. Um, but when, I mean, you started to touch on it a little bit earlier, but what, I mean, when is stress has obviously been around since like the dawn of man, we do need it. Anxiety specifically, like you said, it serves a purpose. It's like tapping you on the shoulder saying like, Hey, like you might want to actually pay attention to that. But like, how do you know, like, when, when do you know, like when it's actually being useful and when it's not. And I know that's not a very yeah. question, but it's like, and maybe there's no answer to it, but it's, I feel like I'm specifically like so conscious about like lately being stressed out and I fight it so hard. And it's just like, I'm just co- constantly thinking about like not having anxiety or not being stressed. But then I'm like, well, actually, maybe I shouldn't be stressed about this shit. Like maybe there's a valid reason and I'm not, paying attention to it because there's just been so much in the air about like how to cope with your stress, how to deal with your stress, how to like put it aside, how to get it out of the way. And it's like, well, when should I be paying attention to it?
0: (laughs) It's really interesting. I think I'm going to do just a bunch of like thinking out loud on this. I think you just, it, it occurred to me just now, as you said that like part of the way that modern media is like this is like these strategies for managing your stress it almost reminds me of like early wave weight loss advice mm-hmm. it's kind of like restrict your calories and you're gonna lose weight that's like for tomorrow maybe and then you know then all hell breaks loose and i think that we're sort of still in a in a phase where it's like, okay, add these practices to your morning routine to decrease your stress. And you're like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Good idea. And then if you actually try to put that into practice, you're like, wait, my morning routine? That's not what my morning looks or feels like. That doesn't always feel like so realistic or helpful at the end of the day because then you just have more to-dos, more schedule clutter, and it sets you up for feeling like a failure once again. It's like, well, I didn't do... I did my morning routine for two and a half days and then I fell off. And now I can't even do this. I'm more stressed about it. On a different note, there's that feeling where we are really attached to productivity. And we, we like that version of ourselves that's like Superman, Superwoman, go, go, go. We're a machine. And I was recently talking with a patient who, you know, that was part of her identity, was how she was so productive and so ambitious and had that drive. And then she had a lot of struggle in her life, a lot of trauma, and she's exhausted. And a big part of what we've been doing for many years is helping rebalance her nervous system, reprogram her limbic system, help her reclaim some relationship to a feeling of calm. And I think we've made great strides. And now she is more calm and less stressed and less driven. And that doesn't feel good. She wants that. And it kind of reminds us how we feel when we're like running on fumes. And it's like, okay, I'm like running on an empty tank, but I'm going and I'm just like, just don't get in my way and I'll just keep going. There's a momentum to it. And I think that to connect back to a positive form of stress or what some people call stress." For whatever reason, the combination of words I use in my mind when I think about this is psilocybin and Beyonce. It's basically when I'm working on writing and I'm trying to write the book and I don't want to just run on fumes or be driven by the motivation of fear and stress. I think about art that inspires me. Beyonce represents that for me. And I could choose something more high art, like oh, Hilda F. Clint inspires me and she does, but let's be real, Beyonce is easy. I open up search on my Instagram and I see a video of Beyonce just mailing something. And I'm like, okay, I am reinvigorated with the drive to write. And psilocybin kind of connecting to my own inner source creative energy, not from a place of running from I'm not enough, but from a place of running toward like, this essential human drive to create. And I think that when it comes to stress, we're in a habit. We're in a habit of feeling stressed, feeling scarcity, feeling overwhelmed. Now, often it's very real. Like like there's so many very real things to be stressed about. And there truly is tragedy. And there are pandemics and there are natural disasters. And there's, you know, injustice and and inequality and economic inequality. And it's just, we are, up against all of these very real stressors. And this is not sort of speaking to that. That's true and that's real and we have to contend with that. But I also think that we can choose for ourselves a slightly different mindset in relationship to it, which is one of, I am enough. I will have enough. I will be enough. I'm okay. And kind of focusing on all I can do is do my best. And just shifting away from that feeling that I think we're indoctrinated with, which is you're not enough, you're broken, you need fixing, buy my product, do more, do this, add this to your life. I think we can reclaim a certain amount of actually in my flawed state of like not being amazingly productive, I'm already enough. And in my flawed kind of like not perfectly winning the game of life, I will be enough. And just recognizing that it's, it's enough and we're okay.
1: Uh, so... This makes total sense, and I think it's oh, so much of it is you know it's it's so intuitive that it's it's almost like so glaringly obvious that we overlook it. But I do want to like tie it back to the actual kind of experience of when you're in it because I mean, just the way that you broke it down earlier when you were talking about like the false anxiety versus true anxiety, I actually feel personally that I fall into the former camp, which is like, it seems like it's more of like a blood sugar like it seems much more physiological for me than it does circumstantial because i don't like again personally a panic attack will sneak up on me and it's not something that happens in the face of like a stressful situation where i'm feeling overwhelmed when i'm feeling overwhelmed and when i'm having like stress responses is when that self talk actually i feel like i can i can do that and I can kind of get myself into this place. of. I think at one time, it was some meditation I was listening to one time, they described thinking about anxiety as though you are sitting inside a house watching a storm. So you're close to it, but you actually are safe and dry, but you're watching it all around you. And that visual was really helpful for me. And so I feel like in those moments, that self-talk does kick in. It's the moments where... And to your point, like I think it might be a blood sugar thing or alcohol related to blood sugar. I, I don't know. I want to understand that better. Self-talk does nothing in those moments when when it actually does feel my heart is pounding out of my chest, I've had like dissociation where I actually feel like I've left my body and I thought I was dead and I'm telling my husband where like the will documents are, like that's where it went. And no amount of like rational thought or calm talk or any of that. Plays a role there. It's just like way too far gone. So I mean, I guess the question is: A, is there is there a a, a, a kind of a tool, a self talk tool that actually can be employed there that I'm not aware of, or is it just actually has nothing to do with it? And B, if it is all in that camp, then you know, then what do you do? Because right now the answer is clonopin and I don't want that to be the answer.
0: Yeah, uh, Erica, I'm so glad you brought this up. So there's a lot to be said about this. <laughs> Caveat number one: one is that. Don't even bother with the self-talk. If, if the panic attack is what I call the point of no return. Like everything about false anxiety, self-talk, all of that is sort of changing your threshold likeliness to trip into a panic attack. So, like, do all the work upfront. But if you're in it, fuck all that. It's not the time for it. It just actually snowballs the experience. You don't. You don't need to try anything there. In a sense, the only thing to try once you're in a panic attack, I think, I found there's maybe like three things that are effective. One is grounding in the present moment. So that's rather than the sort of future tripping, the narratives, the stories we tell ourselves about, I'm dissociated, I'm already dead, let me tell my husband about the will. It's basically, what can I see? What can I smell? What can I touch? What can I taste? It's just like training your attention on the present moment, which Mm -hmm. can sometimes be like the, the garlic to the panic vampire. Sensory things are helpful, splashing water on your face, opening the window for a blast of fresh air, going outside and just having a totally different sensory climate around you. Like if you have kids, if you have Play-Doh around, like touching sensory things, a bucket full of rice, like these sorts of things can sometimes help ground us in the present moment as well. But what I find to be most useful is actually it's, it's understanding the tension between resistance and surrender. And we want to resist pain naturally we want to resist panic because it's fucking uncomfortable but in a way anxiety wants us to resist it and like it loves that that pitting it loves that duking it out with us we want to strong arm it and resist anxiety and anxiety is like oh i got this i'm gonna you know the more you resist it just doubles down and so when we surrender to it and say all right i'm panicking let's do this I'm in natural childbirth. Let's do this. It's like not something that comes naturally to say, like, let me just dive into this. But for whatever reason, that paradoxically makes it a little bit less overwhelming and less difficult and shorter lasting. So the surrender into it and acceptance of like, okay, this is my body in a stress response. It's a panic attack. It's big. It's exquisitely uncomfortable. It's overwhelming. Let's dive into this wave, let it turn me upside down, and then trust that I bobble up to the surface of the water on the other side, which you always do with panic. Oh my god. So crazy. That's fascinating. Yeah, that's,
1: that that's
2: what I've tried. Like it's just like and it's that sort of like tapping into, I don't know, maybe it's like some kind of executive, one, but like something that brings me into like this part of my like like I'll just count down. Like if I'm actually sleeping and I will wake up, or like if I have a panic attack or I'm just having like crazy anxiety,
0: like
2: really counting backwards just sort of like something like trips in my brain or I can like focus on that and I guess it's it's just distracting in a way.
0: It's really interesting you say that this kind of relates to conversations we've had in the past around psychedelics like the, the default mode network where we hang out when we're not doing a task is like future tripping and dwelling on the past and panic loves both those states especially future tripping. T- doing a task like counting backwards or subtracting like by sevens from a hundred anything like that puts your brain back back in a task-oriented executive function state. And so it can take you out of that in that way too. And, you know, I don't mean to say the sort of like surrender thing is easy. It's so hard, but you do want to just be aware that our instinct is to resist and that that exacerbates the anxiety. And so you just want to play gently, lovingly play around with that interface and just sort of recognize the resistance and be like, there I am, I'm resisting it. Okay, understandably. And then you just sort of like see if you can dive in. And so all of this is sort of what do you do at the point of no return, but going back a step to the false anxiety concept, which is my favorite part to focus on is basically there's so much we can do to prevent anxiety from happening in the first place. And I think that's where the magic happens because like... Resistance is one thing, but not panicking in the first place is great. This is the
2: part where you're gonna tell me to stop drinking like caffeine and alcohol. And you I'm, got
0: it, Zoe. I'm not
2: gonna resist. Yeah.
0: So there we go. I mean, yeah. Like that, that's it. Take out all fun and joy from life and, and <laughs> yeah. we're good. We can we can wrap up. So a I percent. think that it's um it's different than that though. It's well, it is that, but it's um I'm gonna I'm gonna try to say it in a way that like gets buy-in. So <laughs> basically I think that. Um, One thing about the false anxieties is to recognize that it can feel either invalidating or empowering to realize that these like seemingly benign choices that we make, these aspects of modern life that are normal and common. And no one's going to be like, you drink a cup of coffee every day in the morning, you've got a problem. Like none of these things are, you know, we're not bad people. We're just doing the things that people do and we get joy from them. But it's, you know, rather than seeing it as like, that's ridiculous that that's why I'm having panic attacks. That's too benign. It's too unimportant. It's too minor. It's too normal. But recognize we are all so physiologically different. And a lot of this is pretty extreme from the perspective of our genes and our human physiology, even though it's normal. And so trying to shift towards more of the empowerment perspective on it, which is like, So you're telling me, I don't need to go pay a lot of money to see a psychiatrist. I don't need a prescription for Klonopin. I don't need to pop a pill. I can do something in my lifestyle that's going to prevent panic attacks. Well, that's actually kind of nice. That's liberating and empowering and saves me some money and some effort. But it does require making inconvenient upstream choices. So, (laughs) So, but some of them are easy. Blood sugar, there's some fun to be had. In regulating our blood sugar. I think that we've all been indoctrinated with pretty crazy views about how to nourish ourselves. And so a lot of us are like doing our best because we just live in this wacky world. We don't have traditional food wisdom passed down generation to generation. So instead we're figuring it out for ourselves and we're trying to do things like eating clean and you can eat perfectly clean. And like every meal you eat is a perfectly Instagrammable matcha latte and you can be starving. You can be malnourished. Um, And we're, we're doing things like trying all these different labels rather than honoring what our body needs, not to mention the fact that we're doing this in a food landscape that doesn't have real food on offer. So like most of what we're surrounded by is, is poison. And yeah. it's like really, I, I get a lot of flack when I use that term and it's like, well, it's true. Well, it's true. It's, I, I understand the the movement around like that, that's, well, I'm going to stand by it, but it's a longer, more nuanced conversation. But basically, Right now, there's a lot of moneyed interest selling us food that has absolutely no regard for our well being or our health. And it's really just shelf stable, cheap, and addictive. And I actually, you know, I want to champion longer nuanced conversation about food. We can go into it. But so basically, stabilizing your blood sugar is kind of comes down to going back to eating real food and avoiding fake food, eating at regular intervals, dropping all the dogma we carry over from the 90s about low fat, about like even eating clean, I think gets dicey when it comes to stabilizing our blood sugar. Because you would be
1: eating nothing but like fruit, for example, and that's super clean. And all you're eating is sugar, which means you're crashing.
0: Exactly. And vegan cupcakes and all of these things. So like, you really have to kind of lose the cultural idea around what's clean. I think what really matters in terms of clean is like, was this real food? Did it grow in healthy soil or was it a healthy animal? That's clean food, but that doesn't necessarily look like what we think of as healthy food. So you can eat a very clean pork belly, in my opinion, and you can eat, um, you know, so I think like you generally want to get back to balance. You want your meals to be roughly a quarter of it is some kind of well-sourced protein, some kind of quarter of it is well-sourced starchy carbohydrates, like starchy tubers, and then half of it is vegetables with healthy fats liberally throughout. And that's not really what's on offer when we eat conveniently, when we go out for a restaurant meal, but that's actually what keeps our blood sugar stable. And then there's a hack, which a lot of my patients benefit from, which is to just take a spoonful of something like almond butter or coconut oil at regular intervals. I
1: remember when you said that, when we the first time we talked about anxiety, and I was like, damn, that makes so much sense. Yeah. <laughs> I've, uh, no, that's first. Like
2: I have my little um my little guinea my little experiments that I do with my children all the time with that. I mean they walk in the door and it's just like, you know, I for myself I I I feel it, you know, to be true. But it's just so visibly like obvious when I do it to them. I mean they're literally like having a full on meltdown, full on, just like screaming. Like, and I'm like, oh, they're either dehydrated and or blood sugar. And I'm just like, dip, dip. it's like water, fat, like that's, and literally like nine times out of 10, it turns everything on its head. Like for the best, you know, I mean, it just, it gets, it's such a sharp left turn.
0: It's, it's so interesting. Yeah. Like, this is what I find so exciting about false moods. Like it, it actually revolutionizes parenting as well. But then kids are always this exaggeration of, of adult physiology. So it really helps shine a light on why we tweak. It's always like, I have a list on the fridge. It's like, why are you tweaking? And when it comes to an infant, it's like, why is the infant tweaking? Do they need to be burped? Do they have a wet diaper? Are they tired? Are they hungry? You know, sometimes it's maybe something else random. Um, are they teething? And that one we can't do a lot about. And so there's an adult, why are you tweaking? It's like, are you hungry? Are you? Did you not sleep well last night? Are you hungover? Did you have too much caffeine today? Not enough caffeine today. Are you due for your psych med? And are you in interdose withdrawal where your body is at a pharmacologic nadir and it's like waiting for its Lexapro? All of these things like... What we feel is so central to our identity, and we're like, "I'm tweaking because the world is messed up, and my life is messed up, and things are really, really bad." And it's like, "No, all that's true, honey, but we're actually tweaking because we're hungry." You might and just it's eat like, some cheese, yeah. yeah. And we can. <laughs> did I just eat cheese? We can handle the gravities. Like, there's there's serious shit going on in the world all the time, but when we're physiologically intact, we can be like, "Okay, let's chip away at this problem." When we really lose our minds is when we're physiologically in a stress response where our body is screaming, I'm missing something, something's not right here. And so that's where we can actually take steps and keep ourselves physiologically stable. And it's really apparent with toddlers, you know, you keep them from their blood sugar crashing and they don't melt down as much, but it's true in adults as well.
1: Blood but not a to one. sleep with the almond butter like next to the bed yeah, because even getting up to go to the kitchen is too far.
0: <laughs> oh, no, for sure. No, we need, you need your own bedside table jar. I mean, if anyone's <laughs> going to do this, you guys should develop the sort of like little packet of almond butter, like even smaller than Justin's and maybe yeah. without the like crappy oils. And, <laughs> and then basically we'll
1: freak out fat pack,
0: <laughs> freak out backpack, And then you just take the <laughs> shot. Um, I, you know, I have it on your bedside table. Sometimes we need it right before we brush our teeth at night. Sometimes we need it at three in the morning and there is the definitive solution, which is keeping our blood sugar stable through diet. But that's, you know, yeah. not always easy, not always possible. Alcohol is I've not a fun two, conversation. The worst
1: two I ever had were when I was in the throes of a hangover. I was yeah. like, oh, now I'm just going to die from a hangover.
0: So if you What's remember... You had was well, when you had a hangover. Is that what you said? Mm-hmm. Yeah. okay So well, for those. anyone who's read Gretchen Rubin, I actually haven't read her book. I just know her like take on it. <laughs> it's basically like we have questioners and rebels, and you know, um, upholders. Like for anyone out there who's that questioner, who's like, convince me with science. Um, let's talk about the science behind why alcohol makes us panic. Um, basically, alcohol. The reason we're drawn to it, it's very understandable. It helps us rush. The synapses in our brains with a neurotransmitter called GABA, stands for gamma amino butyric acid. And it's our primary inhibitory neurotransmitter in our brain. And it's basically the neurotransmitter that says, everything's okay. You're okay. You're going to be okay. And you know, you start to get anxious or panic about something and GABA is like, nah, you're all right. GABA great. And this is why we like booze because you like drink a glass of wine and like suddenly all that tension and we're so wound up and we're stressed about everything. And then suddenly we're awash with GABA and we're like, actually it's no big deal. And that would be great if it ended there. But the trouble is that the brain, the body is not interested in whether or not we're relaxed. It is interested in survival to a large extent. So when it sees us awash with GABA, it thinks, what if a predator came around the corner? We'd be too buzzed to care. And so now it thinks I have to get back to homeostasis, to that state of balance where I can appropriately respond to something relaxing and I can appropriately respond to a true threat. And so it sees all the GABA, it reabsorbs it, and it converts it to glutamate, uh, one of our primary excitatory neurotransmitters. And now suddenly we're edgy, anxious, irritable, not sleeping. And alcohol has its own impact on blood sugar. So like see everything from above about blood sugar, alcohol does that too, but it has its own independent effect on GABA and glutamate. And so when we drink, then we wake up at three or four in the morning and we're kind of like racing thoughts and just feel not at ease and our breathing is shallow and then we don't sleep as well for the remainder of the night. And the next day we're irritable and anxious. That's the effect on GABA. And that's why I do think I mean, I don't have the correct amount of skin in the game because physiologically, for whatever reason, I know that I don't enjoy alcohol as much as most people. I kind of go like I skip the part where it's fun and I go straight to where I just feel nauseous and dizzy and emotionally labile. So I'll admit like I, it's not fair for me to weigh in on this. But I hope that as a society, we're getting to a place where just alcohol isn't the default choice. Um, because a big part of why we do it is because it is the default choice because you're at a restaurant and it's like, oh, here's the drinks menu and everyone's ordering it. And it looks so sophisticated and beautiful. And obviously that's what you do. And it's and
1: what's legal compared to the other legal. stuff. It's
0: what's legal. It's a biggie. And when we want to connect with people, a very this is a very good instinct that we have. We go to a meal, we want to share in the experience. If we want to shift our consciousness, we all want to do it in parallel. You don't want to be the one out of sync. And so if everyone's drinking, you want to drink. And I think that it does, it's just not the best drug we have out there. It's like, I think like of the panoply of what's available for humans to shift their neurochemistry, I think it's like a really shitty option. Yeah. And Anyways, it was, yeah. Just say,
2: so speaking of options to shift that neurochemistry, yeah. so I you're not an alcohol person. I am not a weed person. I'm mm-hmm. definitely, I wish, like I've tried so hard. Like, <laughs> in college. I was just like, let me just try this other, you know, whatever strain someone said is like really great to calm you. Each- and I see people who regularly, whatever, take THC, however they do it, and it really agrees with people. And I'm so envious because I'm like, oh, they're so calm. Yet yeah, whatever, I if I smoke weed or eat a gummy or whatever it is, I'm like in a state of panic. K-hole. Like I don't, like, I'm just like, it isn't the most, I'll either pass out, like just be so exhausted, not in a good way, or just be super like paranoid, like classic stuff. So I avoid it. So that's not within reach for me. It's not really an option for me. So now I go back to like, yeah, wine. I don't know. It's nice. Psilocybin. So here's my question about psilocybin, which I truly enjoy. Maybe the best drug I've ever taken in my life. Like had a few nibbles this weekend. It's hysterical. It's just like the giggliest, most enjoyable drug in my humble opinion. Um, but I wonder, uh, you know, in the same way that when you take any drug or you drink any alcohol and you have this, you know, whatever the, whatever the pro is, whatever the high is, is there, is there an equal low that occurs Uh, Like, do you deplete something when you take psilocybin and then there's sort of like you have to sort of pay the price, you know, neurologically? Or does it does it tap into something that you then have to, like, work through or build back up?
0: Uh, There's so much to say about everything you just said. One thing is I just really want to recognize you for the hard work you've done in trying to make weed work for you. You know, (laughs) we (laughs) don't take (laughs) knowledge You've tried you've given it the old college try. Yeah, I think that um, weed is totally not for everyone's physiology. Psilocybin, caveats abound, right? As we've discussed previously, like, you know, it's not for everyone, it's certainly not for all settings, it has its risks, blah, 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 blah. You want to do it in a safe setting. You want to do it if it's an appropriate match for your brain chemistry and your genetic risk profile and all of that. That being said, I think of psilocybin, and I'm mainly talking about dosing as opposed to microdosing. I think of a psilocybin ceremony as you can feel a little off the next day. You can feel like you didn't get a great night's sleep. You can have a little bit of a headache. You can have a little bit of like an upset stomach. I tend to think of it as giving rather than taking I do separate drugs into these different classes and I'm on the fence I think weed is a complicated one but I think that alcohol just hands down no no question it it, it giveth and then it taketh more than it giveth mm. I think that psilocybin giveth you know a psilocybin ceremony is tremendous not always easy but tremendous and then I think apart from the sort of headachey stomachy tired next day you might have. I think it does give you medicine in your bloodstream for a little while afterward. I tend to feel a little higher vibration I feel more connected to my emotions I feel more I cry more easily which I consider a good thing, not a bad thing. I access joy more easily I access creativity more easily I feel a little for lack of like a less hippie and millennial term like more high vibe for a little while afterward. So I think it, it net giveth. And BMA is a slightly different question where um, it can be profoundly healing for trauma for PTSD. I think that the implications for couples therapy are immense. I think that people can really get out of a stuck vicious cycle in their arguments in relationships. However, I do think that it there's a come down that's like worth taking into account when you think about who you are and your relationship to. Depression, bipolar. If there's any vulnerability there, I think that the MD may come down. Can sometimes make it not worthwhile. Um, It's a judgment call. Weed is its own whole thing. Where some people are like, I think that weed sometimes helps people avoid things that taketh more than they giveth. Some of my patients use it instead of a bunch of NSAIDs for their menstrual cramps. Some people use it to help get off of benzos. There are ways that I think it really is net positive. And then I, I also have patients for whom it seems to just be slowly numbing them out, taking them away from their lives a little bit. So I don't think it's an easy answer. I do tend to think that cannabis works well when we come to it in in somewhat of a sacred way, like make a ritual of it once, maybe twice a week, rather than like a daily use relationship to it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Does that even answer the question I'm trying to think? It okay. did.
2: It did. Yeah. No. And it's, it's true. I mean, I've only done MDMA a handful of times, but I have to say the hangover from that is just like my, my happy hormones seem like super depleted.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, serotonin. Yeah.
2: So um, no, that's interesting. Cause I think, you know, a lot of people are turning hopefully to, or experimenting with some of these things for anxiety and depression. So I think it's, yeah, you definitely answered the question.
0: I'll throw out there one addendum, which is like, if we look at our, menu of like, well, how do I shift my consciousness and have a fun Saturday night? Um I think that if you start to realize that alcohol is ultimately not serving you in your life, there are ways to use less alcohol, there's ways to use it less often, there's ways to use it early in the night and to support it with a little bit of, you know, something to stabilize your blood sugars. So you've taken care of maybe half of the challenge it puts on your physiology. But I I do think that we are we've just not been sold, you know, there's no there's, there's big alcohol selling us that story. We haven't been sold on these other ways to have an amazing Saturday night. And like, it's a little different for everyone, but can it be mindful music listening? Can it be dancing sober? Can it be that you're having a psilocybin macro ceremony frequently enough that for you to gather with the people you love and be completely sober and just laugh together is really easily accessible without any social lubricant. So I think that it's, it's I think we can just can it be hiking, you know, just find that from nature. I think that there's a lot of ways to get really present, to have a really fulfilling interaction to to decompress and cut loose on a Saturday night. It's not just alcohol. And there's just no like big hiking or big surfing or big <laughs> sober dance that's like selling us this message but They're we're working to figure it, it out yeah right getting
2: there. I think it is getting there I feel like there's so much more I don't know I think people are embracing like non-alcoholic beverages so much I mean it's sort of a like slightly younger generation but I think it is you know it's definitely getting there
0: I agree I agree yeah. the sober curious it's it's there is a hip sobriety movement no, and absolutely. I'm here for it <laughs> Yeah. So um, if you want to sort of round out the discussion of false anxieties, how do we prevent the panic attack from happening in the first place? Um, We talked about blood sugar. We talked about alcohol. That's been kind of brutal. So maybe we'll skip the one about caffeine. But like the quick and dirty on that is that caffeine can put our body in a stress response. It can make us release cortisol. So... For people that are that's
1: sensitive to caffeine. Issue. I know that's okay.
0: fact. It's fabulous. I can't drink it, so yeah. Oh well, there you go. <laughs> um, but that actually gives us a kind of an interesting clue. Um, you can't drink it because it makes you nervous. I get palpitations
1: from regular coffee, and I love it. And I love. I have a serious decaf habit, but um, I can't, like one cup of regular coffee, and I will be sweating and heart pounding for half an hour.
0: Yeah, you're on the sensitive end of the spectrum when it comes to being in a stress response, releasing cortisol. <laughs> which, yeah, we know, we know that more now even. And decaf is interesting. I know. Yeah, I yeah. certainly Just get so anxious fun. from decaf. Like I'm that much of a snowflake that you know people are like, I'll have six coffees a day, and I'm like, I'll get anxious from half a decaf. Wow. <laughs>
1: so- I'm not quite there, but I I do like you know probably over the course of my morning like three cups, and I know it's like. It's like seven milligrams a cup or something like that. So I'm like, if I don't go over thirty milligrams of caffeine a day, I'm fine.
0: Yeah. If only someone could come out with like a really good functional mushroom beverage line that could take the place of that. I know. If, if only. only. If only. If only. Oh. Oh, that's what we really need. <laughs>
1: Well, I have... I mean, I say this all the time, but I have found that when I mix our... I use some of our cold brew that has the mushroom and L-theanine and I mix it in my decaf and I don't get a reaction at all. So
0: That's a nice balance. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So driving right past the caffeine discussion that nobody wants to have. um, Sleep is a factor. Um, Sleep, it's not like the important message is... Hey, you guys, did you know sleep was important? I think we got that memo. Like, I credit Ariana Huffington and like her, like, she got it in our brains that sleep is actually your secret weapon and it's worth prioritizing. I think the much more valuable messaging is around how do we get tired and sleep through the night in modern life with all of these assaults on our circadian rhythm? So, it really comes down to prioritizing sleep, making for an earlier bedtime, aiming for around three hours after sunset, and being really conscious of our exposure to blue spectrum light after sunset. And that might mean dimming the lights in your home. Certainly shutting down screens is great, but as a nice um, harm reduction strategy, like the needle exchange program here is to wear blue blocking glasses in the evening. Boom. And all so day. all day, <laughs> great, but not in the morning because you do well, want the sun. They're my reading glasses. So
1: they just have a blue screen. True. Perfect. Uh, that's a good point though. Yeah, because all of my
2: glasses now have uh, blue uh,
0: <laughs> the Um I'm like cluttering everyone's lives by saying you need more glasses. But in a way, you want that dose of natural sunlight first thing in the morning, and then you don't want it the rest of the day.
1: Well, yeah. I, I guess I'm saying because they're only reading glasses. So I'm not wearing them you know, okay. as soon as I wake up. I'm just wearing them when I'm looking at screens. That's thing.
0: ideal. Yeah. Chef's kiss. Um, and the last piece, and there's a lot you can go into with false anxiety, but the last piece that I think is a really big hitter is around the state of our that. And I think this one's underappreciated. Like we're talking about gut health, certainly, but I think we don't realize that part of the reason we're in this epidemic of anxiety and panic is because we're in an epidemic of really decimated gut floras. And we even know that there are certain strains of bacteroides species and our gut bacteria that are involved in the synthesis of GABA, and we're missing it because we take antibiotics and because our tap water is chlorinated and because you know you name it, like. Um, antibiotic residue in our dairy products, and the fact that we're not breastfed and we're born by C section, which is never to blame or shame around these things that are often out of our control. But it's just to understand systematically in modern life, we're missing microbes and we're lacking that diverse ecosystem of microbes that helps us have the neurotransmitters that can make us feel calm.
1: Do you recommend GABA supplements, or do you feel like it's not because it's not going to be naturally synthesized? It's just never going to be the same.
0: From what I know, it, none of my patients have found them to be particularly effective. I get the sense it's really hard to create something that crosses the blood-brain barrier to be effective. And I think there are supplement companies that would claim we we did it, <laughs> liposomal or whatever it is. But that hasn't been the pathway that's been most successful for my patients. It's been gut healing. It's been um, promoting GABA in all these other ways, minimizing alcohol, avoiding benzodiazepines, Chanting, cold water plunging, cold showers, gargling salt water—it's random things, but it's like basically working with the vagus nerve and working with our like acupuncture, reiki, craniosacral therapy, yoga, meditation—all of this just helps us have healthy GABA levels naturally. That's interesting. interesting.
1: Yeah, I did take a supplement for a little while, and all it did was make me feel like I felt groggy in the morning, but it didn't yeah. actually help me feel. Anything. It didn't
2: do anything for me either. I tried it. Um, yeah. Can I just ask you because I know we're running a little bit close, um, but I just want to talk about the type of anxiety that I've been having lately, and I feel like it's on the opposite end of maybe what it's not so physiological. I think it is maybe would benefit from um, some strategic like self-talk, um, and I think it falls. I, I I hope it's I imagine it's somewhat common, particularly if you have children. But I think that there is like this new uh, anxiety that like recurringly like creeps up for me, which is around, uh, basically around dying. So I'll just back into it. Okay, I'm going to die early, prematurely. I'm going to, I'll have done it to myself because of like things I, basically because I didn't take care of myself the way I was supposed to take care of it. Now I'm putting my or like some catastrophic thing will happen and then my kids will be orphaned. And it's like, it's this crazy, <laughs> it's this crazy downward spiral. But it, it's kind of, there's a lot of catastrophizing, right? Like it, that happens. And I, I don't know if that is like a product of having children and you literally like constantly go through every single thing that could go wrong that would basically like take you out of their lives or whatever. Um, so that is a big one for me, but it's often triggered by having an enjoyable experience, right? So sometimes if I'm like, oh, I'm going to do what like, take some mushrooms, I'm going to like, but in what, in however I'm putting myself in harm's way, quote unquote, it's quickly dashed by like, whatever that joy is, is dashed by this sort of like, Fear that now I've like done something wrong. This like catastrophic thing is going to happen, and like my kids are going to die because I I've made poor choices.
1: How, like, how is that a normal? Eat some peanut butter.
2: eat a spoon of gabagoo, gabagoo butter. Like what? What do you like? A, do you think that that's somewhat typical in your experience? And B, how do you sort of like talk yourself out of? you know talking to yourself like you're a horrible irresponsible person who's putting your children in harm's way because you've made poor life choices
0: yeah um first of all obviously completely normal especially in parenthood i think especially in motherhood it's almost like when you get pregnant there's this like engorgement of a gyrus in the brain that's basically designed to be like oh god what about this what about that anticipate this negative consequence so normal absolutely I think that um, two quotes come to mind around this. One is Glennon Doyle's discussion from her book, Untamed, about the ache. The ache, where she describes it as when we love something so much that we just, we think, oh God, they're going to die. I'm going to lose this person. It's going to hurt too much. And earlier in her life, she felt like the ache was saying, like, this hurts, so leave. Basically, don't get close. Don't get vulnerable. Don't set yourself up for devastation but she came to realize the ache is actually here to communicate. This hurts, so stay. So this is a very big part of my worldview is to basically go right into those things that are so exquisitely like the stuff of what's good about being in this material human existence, like holding your child on your lap and it's golden hour and they're just perfect age and so cute and so precious. And you're like, I love this thing so much and I want to freeze this moment and the fact that this is going to change and it's impermanent and one of us is going to lose the other one of us one day, like raises all the most like essential human, like feeling of this is unbearable. And right as you hit that moment, that's exactly the the wave you want to ride through your life. You know, as like in a surfing analogy sense, like you are in the sort of like, that is exactly the sweet spot and you just ride that wave. So right as I'm holding my child on my lap, this happened this weekend where I was like, this is unbearably poignant. I just stayed wide awake to that moment, to that feeling. You don't want to miss it. You don't want to distract yourself with from it with the anxious thoughts because the anxious thoughts take you on a magic carpet ride somewhere else. You want to be right there and just be like, I'm wide awake. This is so overwhelmingly like what matters to me and it's vulnerable, but I'm going to sit right here in the middle of that. That's one piece of this. The other piece of this is this quote I came across that's, um, I think I learned it first from a patient, which is basically trust in Allah, but tie your camel. And to me, that speaks to the balance of trust and surrender and doing our best that we need to strive for in our lives. So basically like we have to do our best. We have to tie our camel. We, we can't just be like, well, like, you know, you're, you're the, the fear of like, I did something to cause my premature death and therefore my kids are orphaned. It's like, sometimes we can have so much pressure on ourselves that you have to do everything right so that you can stay healthy for your kids, but it makes us want to rebel and almost run the other way. So just give yourself just a healthy amount of like, all I have to do is do my best. Generally take care of my health. Generally make good choices. Generally use good judgment. Like, and it doesn't have to be such a weighty pressure that you're never doing anything because then we miss life in a totally different way. Mm -hmm. And so you want to live your life with a reasonable amount of good judgment, but living. And then there's the part that's trust in Allah, which of course is a pretty charged concept of like, you know, trusting in a God or, but I do think that for me, what's been helpful when I've approached challenge loss. Is basically, do I see this as just senseless and cruel nothingness and randomness, and it's just awful? Or do I see it as part of an interconnected web of everything? And I could be wrong, but I've chosen to see it as a part of it, an interconnected web of everything. And I'm okay if I'm being deluded by that. That's fine because I get comfort and meaning from it, I make better choices as a result of it. So when things are hard, and I'm not trying to say that spiritual bypass, of like everything happens for a reason, like, no, 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 like tie your camel. We still have to show up. We have to fight to make the world a better place. There's still so much to do. But when things are hard, I do do my best to surrender to it, to allow it, to accept it and to see it as we don't know how this story ends quite yet. And so a certain amount of you show up and you do your best and then you let go.
2: That is so beautifully put, and oh my god, how many times am I going to use trust in allah, camel? I mean, camel, it would like the best quote. So that is a good one. I don't have any tattoos, but if I did, <laughs> maybe, maybe. <laughs>
1: well, maybe that's the next next risky behavior you'll right. Engage. I was going to say
0: you went to get a tattoo and you got hit by a bus on the way.
1: I <laughs> <laughs> Or oh, wait, no,
0: What do you get from. Right, Hepsi. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh and God. your children are orphaned. Um, a great one. Thank you. Oh, amazing. God, better. All right. A- All right. This is what we do here. <laughs> cool. All in a day's work.
2: That's a great book, by the way. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you for answering that. I think that that was, uh, I think that's something I think about often. And I feel like, yeah, I always, and I'm, I'm glad you kind of did the, the spiritual bypassing side note because I'm often just like, it's so. The most it's maybe the most irritating quality in a person to me is someone who's just like, it is what it is, you know, kind of like thing, which I can't stand. But I do, I think I I also subscribe to this sort of like interconnectedness. Uh,
0: Yeah, I think it is what it is. Like things are really bad. Like so much is really not right in the world. And, you know, I, I actually think who else but us, like we have a responsibility to change it. Um, I've been thinking a lot lately because I've been writing a book and it's like, I just have this woman on TikTok who like stands in this parking garage and kicks her foot and just says, do you want to achieve great things? And you're like, you better work. And I have that refrain in my brain all the time now. Like, We need to work. There is so much work to do. We got to work, but it doesn't have to be, we're starting from behind. We're not enough. We'll never be enough. It's overwhelming. It's stressful. We can reframe. We can just be like, you know what? The world is not right. I, I ultimately trust like I've been put here with a certain perspective and set of skills and foundation from which to fight and now get to work. But not in a place that's like, it's never enough. More just like work, do your part. It's enough. It's do You're your part. are on the yeah. path. We're on our path. We don't have to feel like we're behind.
1: Yeah. yeah. And, and everybody needs to do their part because that's the only way anything's gonna get done. I mean, I think that's where, you know, the, the, it breaks down a little bit. But just because you know, the one to your left George, you're right. It not doing their part, like is not an excuse to not do yours. And I think that's... Yes.
0: Yeah. And, and where, you know, you think about humans, like a horse is born and it can like walk that day, you know, <laughs> humans were basically adolescents till we're like 27. Like as we get more and more advanced, there's a longer incubation period. Some of it happens in utero and a bunch of it happens like in preschool and at home and sitting at home in your basement. I think that you know, we all have this feeling of I'm behind. Why am I not as successful or as accomplished as that person next to me? They have a family and they have three kids and they have this career accomplishment and blah, blah, blah. No, 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 no. Recognize that like you've been given a certain set of conditions to incubate you, your perspective, your offering, what you're here capable of contributing. And if you're... 68 and you don't feel like you've had your accomplishment yet, like you had a long incubation, you're destined for great things. You bring a unique perspective that only someone who's gone through what you've gone through can bring. And that's part of your offering. So I I want us to all resist this feeling of I'm behind. I think we're all right on track. I do think it still comes back to tie your camel. Like it doesn't mean just sit back and like you're on a lazy river. I think you listen, you remain available for the learnings. And you keep listening for like, what is the world telling you you're here to do? You still have to work. You you have to tie your camel, you have to work. But you can trust the process and what's been thrown at you through your life is here to shape your perspective. And whether it's like some God orchestrating all of this or randomness to me doesn't totally matter because the same outcome either way, we have different perspectives and different things to offer. And that's our contribution.
1: God, I'm so glad you're writing a book because I hope oh all of this God. is in there.
0: I hope so too. Now that I think about it, <laughs> I feel like I do my best writing on podcasts. So.
1: <laughs> well, look, it's recorded, so if you need some of these sound bites back,
0: we'll send it. <laughs> uh, that shit has already been handed in, so <laughs> this this is unique content. <laughs>
1: All right. Well, this has been really valuable. I know we started out talking on a micro topic, but the macro around it, I feel like, is so valuable um, and helps to kind of keep it all in perspective.
0: Panic is huge. And if anybody out there listening experiences panic, like it's explicitly uncomfortable, it sucks, and recognize that a lot of it is avoidable. And I don't say that to invalidate how very hard it's been. Or to like shame people for like, why didn't I think of that? Like we're living in a world that does not teach us this. We should be teaching blood sugar stabilization in junior high. We don't, we teach fractions or whatever. I don't know. That's maybe fourth (laughs) grade, who knows? But the thing is, is that learn it now and put these things into practice and see if you can just keep yourself physiologically shifted towards just a little bit of a state of relaxation, not stress. It'll make it less likely that you panic. And then if there's some remaining anxiety after all of that, there's a chance that's your true anxiety. That's the call to action that's here to tell you something's not right in the world around you in your life. Take a look at it. Take steps accordingly, and and then yeah, in the in the point of no return, don't bother trying to talk to yourself and the like. Okay, positive affirmations. Okay, breathing exercises. Like no, no, no. Take that pressure off yourself. All that's just gonna exacerbate the state. Dive in. Get sensory information. Count. Get executive function. Get a blast of water on your face or fresh air. And um, just try not to resist it. Surrender into it. I,
2: so. I have a lot of Play-Doh in my kitchen at the moment, um, Erica. If you want to come over, and- I
0: might come over and take some Play-Doh. <laughs> Play-Doh everywhere. I have some stuck to my couch cushions. You're welcome to that. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I love that
0: idea. Yeah. All
1: right, yeah. we'll tie your camel and eat some almond butter, everybody.
0: <laughs> That's what we're getting tattooed.
1: <laughs> Thank you so much, Alan. Thank,
0: Thank you. Nice. you Alan.
1: That was so lovely.
0: I love you both. Thank you so much for having me back on.
1: Thanks for listening to HTW. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and make sure and rate us on iTunes. You can even give us five whole stars if you think we deserve it. If you have ideas for guests or topics, you can call our 1-800 number. Yes, we have a 1-800 number at 800-674-1839 or holler at us on social at htwpodcast. You can also head to our website at
2: htwpodcast.com for more episode info and check out our Daily Blend blog to see what we're drinking.